Forte Foundation is a collaboration between leading companies and top business schools to launch women into fulfilling significant, significant careers through access to business education, opportunities, and a community of successful women. Our goal is to connect you to the right people and give you access to the tools you need to have the successful business career you, you deserve. deserve. You deserve. Welcome back to the Forte Foundation podcast. Every episode, we bring you personal stories and career insights from successful businesswomen representing diverse industries and career stages. If you're unfamiliar with Forte and what we do, please go to ForteFoundation.org right now and see what we can do for you. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to our Forte Women Lead series. Today, our topic is Men as Allies from Campus to Corporate. Uh, my name is Alyssa Sangster, and I'm pleased to welcome you um, to this Spotlight webinar. Um, I'm the Executive Director of Forte, and we have been working a great deal in this space, um, first primarily at the MBA level and now at the corporate level, and we're excited to engage you in a conversation to today around this really important topic. Um, for those of you who haven't found it yet, we do have an entire area on our website that's devoted to Men as Allies. You can find it under the MBA Audience tab, but the content really is applicable to both the MBA and the corporate audience. As well, we're updating this site in the coming weeks, providing additional resources that are specifically for our corporate audience. So stay tuned for that, but I think you'll get a great deal of information out of that. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, I'm Alyssa Sangster. I'm the Executive Director of Forte, and I am your moderator for today's discussion. I want to um, in, uh, tell you a little bit just about the, you know, male allies and, and why Forte got involved. We really felt like in all of our work with women that, uh, you know, in encouraging them and supporting them throughout kind of the discovery of business as a career path and then supporting them as they make those decisions throughout their career, that this topic was coming up around uh, male support, male mentorship, male allyship, and we heard about some really interesting things going on on the business school campuses around male allies, and we thought it would be important for Forte as an organization to support these efforts. Um, we think it's, it's really a great learning opportunity on these campuses for men to have this safe place and this opportunity to engage with um, their, their both male and female colleagues and talk about what their responsibility is as a future business leader um, in order to be um, someone who cares about gender equity, gender parity, and someone who wants to run their organization and their, their company in a way that reflects, um, you know, the support of those efforts. So there was a lot of interesting things going on, and we thought that um, our support of this initiative um, at a national and international level was really um, important to the organization. We'll hear more during our conversation today about why male ally groups are really important. And honestly, with everything that's going on now, we just thought it was a good time for Forte to bring this group together and share some of our learnings with a wider audience. We've been in this space for a few years and we've been supporting these groups and building this toolkit over the last two to three years. But we thought that given the Me Too and the Time's Up movement and all of the press, that it was important to revisit this topic and really discuss why this very positive movement of male allyship is something that should be celebrated and that we can learn from these pioneers really in this space. And um, I think that they'll have a lot of great things to share with you today. So we pulled together a group of panelists that can really share, um, you know, from a, a wide variety of experiences. Um, and they bring a diverse set of perspectives, I think, and we'll, um, we'll go ahead and have each of them introduce themselves a little bit, um, but we've brought a current student, um, some students, uh, some alums who actually were student leaders in this movement um, over the last couple of years. And then we also have Lisa Levy, an author and organizational consultant who has um, some, done some deep research in this space, particularly around male allies, has a background in diversity, and I think we'll, we'll add some light from a research perspective to the conversation. So I'm going to ask each of them um, to introduce themselves and to, to give a little bit of a one to two minute kind of introduction. Lisa, I'm going to start with you. Um, if you just want to give um, a little bit about your aha moment 
around diversity or just do a, a, a quick intro? So I'm Lisa Levy. I'm a long-term diversity consultant and uh, spent a number of years with Catalyst, an organization you might know of and managed their network practice at one point. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about uh, called The Libra Solution about really navigating the challenges to gender equity both at work and at home, particularly for, for those folks, uh, women and men in dual career professional couples. And in recent years, I've been really delighted to partner with Forte on this uh, Men as Allies initiative. And I'm going to be, um, I have a consulting company and I'm going to be rebranding it in the spring to GenderWorks and both consulting on, um, you know, engaging men in this work as well as um, starting a coaching practice for dual career couples. So delighted to be here today. Let's see, Alan, why don't we go ahead and get, let you go ahead and start with your introduction. Are you with us, Alan? Great. I'm Alan. I'm a current MBA student at Tuck. Uh, I'm a dual degree candidate with the Harvard Kennedy School uh, in my last year, and um, I think I'm one of the number of us, both at WIB and Men as Allies students, uh, helping spearhead some of the initiatives here on campus. So excited to be here with all of you. Okay, great. So Kyle, maybe we'll kick you off with an alum uh, from an MBA, from the Male Allies perspective, and then we'll go to Jen and Laszlo. Hi, everyone. Uh, Kyle Grootman here, uh, calling in from California. Uh, currently work at LinkedIn as a senior talent management consultant within our learning and development group. I've uh, been with LinkedIn for a few years now. I graduated from Michigan Ross back in 2015. And at that time, uh, during my second year, I was uh, one of the members of the founding team of what is today the Michigan Business Women Allies Group. So was fortunate to partner with uh, Michigan Business Women and getting a male ally group off the ground and really excited to share some of those experiences as well as what I've seen in the workplace since I graduated with all of you today. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks, Kyle. Jen? Um, hi, everyone. My name is Jen Wilcox-Thomas. I graduated um, from the Stanford Graduate School of Business um, in 2015, and while I was there, um, was the co-president of Women in Management um, and kind of with the help of some other folks on campus helped launch uh, what we called WIMEN, which was our male engagement effort that was focused not only on kind of increasing awareness and understanding of um, women's issues, but also focusing on some of the gender issues that men face in the workplace. And since then, I've been working at a firm called Hall Capital, um, helping families and foundations think through their investing. Great. Thanks, Jen. And Laszlo, are you with us? So I was a Wharton MBA class of 2016 graduate. And during my time there, I was a member of the founding class and then served as the president of our male ally group. Uh, which was called the Wharton 22s. It was a tongue-in-cheek reference to the pay gap at the time we founded the group. Today I'm a real estate investment professional, but I remain fairly active in gender equity work. I'm really excited to be here, and thanks to Forte for putting this together. Great. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and um, turn the mic over to Lisa. Lisa, it would be great if you can just kind of share a little bit of your perspective um, around why more men aren't involved. Um, I'm going to pull the graphic up and you can kind of use that to walk through. So uh, great. Thanks, Lisa. And I'll pass it over to you. Well, one of the things that's is so incredibly powerful about male ally groups is it's a way to engage men actively. And so I was very interested in thinking about what is the starting point in terms of how men think about gender equity and gender diversity, thus sort of the continuum was born, if you will, the picture you see. And if you start on the left side, it starts with what, what I um, am describing as a problem for men. Those men who feel like it's a takeaway, that their worldview, it's more of a zero-sum game and that, you know, women's gains are going to basically hurt them or, or take away some of their opportunities. Then you move to uh, not a problem. Uh, typically, these are men who see women all around them, who you know know or are aware of women in senior roles. So from their vantage point, they 
they feel like there isn't an issue and, you know, they don't really have a sense of sort of the bigger macro picture that we know to be the case of that women aren't uh, represented uh, equally at many levels. If you move to the next point, uh, I describe that as not my problem. And I think it's men who think this may be a problem and are perhaps open to that, but they, fe they feel like, you know, women are, are handling it. They have networks and there are women's initiatives and, you know, there's a lot going on and they feel like, you know, sort of women have got this covered, I don't really need to be involved. Uh, then we would move to uh, this idea of it's a problem, but I'm not really sure what to do about it. And I think, you know, men ha those men have some understanding of the issues, typically have very good intent, and there's really a feeling of worry about I'm going to get it wrong, I'm going to make a mistake. Uh, it, it feels very risky to them, and often the sense is it's much smarter and safer to just not be involved. And then when you get to the other end, uh, on the right side, which is what we hope, you know, we know male ally groups can facilitate, it's really getting to the point where men both see that there are issues or there are gender challenges and they also feel equipped to know how to respond to them. So, you know, these are the men typically like the men on the call and many I've had the incredible pleasure to talk to over the last several years a really deep understanding of the issues and also a sense of that there's many ways to respond that could be more overt, it could be more subtle, you know, there's not just one right way, but they feel like they really can be part of the solution instead of feeling unclear and confused and, you know, I just don't know what to do about it. So that's sort of, that's kind of the overview of uh, how men come to the table in terms of thinking about these issues. That's great, Lisa. Thanks for, you know, sharing kind of a framework that we can can use as a reference point, I think, throughout the, the webinar. Um, and maybe you can tell us um, a little bit about what motivated you personally to get involved with the male allies movement. Well, I, you know, I've been in this space a long time and um, a friend, um, Ann Weisberg, who some of you may know, who's been in the diversity space for a long time as well, uh, told me about an event at the Harvard Business School. I live in the Boston area on Mass Ave, so <laughs> not so far away. And um, so I went to this event and what was so striking, so this was in the spring of 2013, and what was so striking was how striking it was. Even having been in this field then for a number of years, I had never seen basically something communicating that a group of men were getting together for the core purpose of supporting gender equity. So that alone, not that many years ago, was such a memorable thing. And I've also really been a long-term advocate for the importance of men in the gender conversation and it kind of felt like the world was finally catching up to what I feel like I'd been talking about for a long time. Um, I would just finish that with saying, you know, it's among the most gratifying work I feel like I've done in my career and I really see these male ally groups as a huge game changer. I feel like there's so much about the experience on campus that uh, I've learned and, and companies can learn from their experience and I think it's just such a powerful way to engage men in a positive way, in a, you know, in a proactive way and to really invite them to partner with women and, and really join the gender conversation. So, um, yeah. very That's happy great. to yeah. see them. Yeah, thank you, Lisa, and I totally agree. I mean, it's really positioned us well as an organization, too, to be able to have these really positive conversations, especially in a time where a lot of the conversation is negative and reactive, and this seems like such a proactive movement with such positive um, outcomes. So I'd love to dive in a little bit deeper with um, a couple of our panelists just to talk about what, what was it about um, the male allies movement that motivated you? Was it personal? Was it an individual person or individual in your life that made an impact? 
uh, a specific moment on campus or in the workplace that you thought, hmm, something needs to happen here. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what was that kind of catalyst that drove you into this work? So um, I believe Kyle and Alan, maybe both of you have a, a comment. And Kyle, why don't we kick it off with, with your thoughts? Thanks, Melissa. And, um, you know, as I think back to how I ultimately got engaged in the movement, um, I think for me it's rooted in a very close relationship that I had with my grandmother. Uh, and I'm very proud, at least, that, uh, that I can admit that I'm a grandma's, grandma's boy at heart. And I think spending a lot of time with her, realizing um, just how smart, intelligent, like super networker, uh, but really sacrifice any sense of a career. You know, here was a, a high school valedictorian who didn't end up going to college and pretty much took the, the title as, as, as housewife. Um, and I think that was just more so based on where society was at that point. And so a lot of times I just think back, you know, what would have been for, for my grandmother and what kind of career she could have had if the circumstances were a little different um, and certainly want to make things better for, for current generations, but as well as for future generations. And so that's the personal um, element for me. And I think more on the professional side, uh, working at a company prior to business school, our executive staff team was exclusively men. And uh, I took on a role towards the end of my tenure there uh, that brought me into the management team meetings where the middle management had a nice mix, uh, nice gender diversity, but the executive team was exclusively men. And I can remember one meeting in particular where one of the executives had made an offhand comment and on one side of the table were just all men and they were laughing. And I'm just sort of like having this out-of-body observer experience to see like that on one side of the table and then turn to my right to see sort of blank stares or just like not impressed looks um, from, you know, my female colleagues. And in that moment, wondering, this doesn't feel good. I'm uncomfortable, but here I am paralyzed and not feeling like I'm equipped to do something about it. And so I remember leaving the meeting, going up to uh, one of them and sort of saying, that, that didn't feel good. Like, did that feel good for you? And she said, oh, you know, like we're, we're used to it. Like, that's just like how things are. And that really, really left a pretty strong impression for me. And so I took that uh, with me as I, as I went on to campus. And I think if looking at Lisa's uh, visual, certainly seeing myself squarely in the recognizing there is a problem, but um, for many years, not really sure how to respond to it. That's great. Thanks, Kyle. And, and Alan? <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, for me, uh, I typically worked in uh, professions that did have a significant uh, female representation. But what I noticed, though, even as a teacher um, in southeast Arkansas, was that a lot of the things that, and I don't want to use the word get away, was able to get away with, but things that I wasn't necessarily expected to do, like, for example, checking in in the morning or very sort of mundane tasks that I kind of would just forget to do or no one was really holding me accountable for. My female co colleagues were really um, kind of under a microscope about those things. And so, you know, just that, that's one small example. But I noticed, you know, for the six, seven years I worked for business school that there was a lot of sort of implicit and sometimes explicit bias and things that women had to experience. And I think when I came to business school, I saw that, you know, the women in business group here is well established and does a lot of great things uh, on campus. And as some of us were talking, it just seemed as if we needed a structure in place to sort of get a lot of the males aware, especially those who ostensibly will in some way, shape or form, be managing others, leading others, be responsible for promotion to at least start signaling that awareness. And I think um, it, for us, it's like really important to be able to provide, to be a sort of support mechanism for a lot of the stuff that women on campus at Tuck, especially now that um, I think we're about 44% female here, uh, that the great things they're doing and how we can be supportive and really understand how we can be allies so that, again, it's not men just dictating what that ought to look like, but that we're um, kind of being uh, aware of the issues that women, especially our colleagues, are facing and making sure that some of the things um, that we can control in situations we're in, we know how to be equipped to address them appropriately. That's great. Thanks, thanks both of you for sharing those perspectives. And I'm sure those listening in, you know, have their own kind of thoughts about why this is important or why it popped up on your radar. Um, I, I just a reminder too that you're welcome to ask questions in the Q&A section if you do have any. So um, continue to put those in, and we'll come back to them at the close of the webinar. Laszlo and Jen, I just want to 
kind of turn a little bit to kind of your uh, respective male and female perspectives and what were some of the biggest obstacles as you were starting a male ally group on campus and did you experience any resistance? Did you have difficulty convincing the men on campus that they should be involved? And any concerns from the female perspective that this wasn't kind of white knighting, it's a term we've heard used quite a bit in terms of men riding in on their um, white horses to save the day and that there can sometimes be a little pushback from the women around that topic. So um, Laszlo and Jen, um, open to your response. Maybe Laszlo, if you want to go first, and then Jen. Sure. And, and Jen can certainly cr critique my uh, my approach. Um, so I would say, you know, the, the question you're asking is highly dependent on context. Um, and in the business school setting, and I think other settings where the audience is highly socialized in terms of, you know, what's acceptable to say, what opinions are acceptable to voice, you know, the resistance we face isn't outright opposition to gender equity or or at least it's not communicated as such. I think the real challenge that we face in those type of environments and, and likely in corporate environments is capturing people's engagement and awareness uh, and really making men who are in the middle of that spectrum that Lisa spoke about earlier um, give us the, the time of day and see that this is something that involves them. And I think that's that was sort of the um, the foundation for where we approached our work at the Wharton 22s, it was a, a recognition that, um, one, the onus of changing the status quo shouldn't sit entirely on the shoulders of those who are disadvantaged uh, by it. And, and the flip side of the coin was because of our privilege as men, because um, we might be able to capture men's attention in ways our female colleagues uh, were unfortunately not, uh, and because we were in certain spheres of discussion where there might not be women present, we had both a responsibility and an opportunity to really change minds. And I think, you know, that, that was sort of the guiding thesis for our group. And so what we really tried to do was develop a uh, role model structure where we could show men, uh, one, why these were real issues, why these were issues that uh, maybe affected them directly or indirectly, uh, and then demonstrate to them the type of behaviors that they could take part in to engage in dialogue and ultimately be an activist for, for positive change. Uh, because as, as Lisa and others have highlighted, uh, the challenge is often, even for well-intentioned men, what does it look like to speak up about a joke or to engage with an issue when I've only ever been taught that this is a women's issue that I should uh, not participate in? And so I think that was sort of our approach to um, engaging men and overcoming the inertia uh, that we saw. And I think in part and parcel with that to the latter part of your question was um, making sure that we voiced and communicated these issues not in a way that suggested men are here to offer the answers or fix the problem that, that women have been uh, working against for, for decades, but rather that we have a duty and sort of a uh, moral obligation to look inward and, and correct our own actions. I would echo a lot of the things that Laszlo touched on. Um, the first thing that I think was really important about getting this initiative started at Stanford was the fact that it was um, essentially a grassroots movement. And so this wasn't something that the administration suggested to us. This wasn't something that alumni told us we should be doing. Um, this was something that kind of current students, both men and women, felt was lacking in terms of the dialogue on campus. And so we kind of came together to, to figure out what that would look like. And so the first thing that I'd say is important is that um, to avoid kind of the white knighting issue or the Alyssa that you spoke to, um, that it's really kind of coming from the students on what they want and kind of what they think, what they envision our community looking like. I also think that a really important piece of this dialogue is not just talking about ways in which women are disadvantaged at work, but also ways in which traditional gender norms um, can be really unhelpful or unproductive for the types of lives that our male colleagues want to be leading. Um, so for example, one of my classmates taught, who's going back into consulting 
talked about how frustrating it was that his, you know, big consulting firm had a fantastic part-time ramp-back-on program for new moms, um, but it really wasn't socially acceptable for new dads to do kind of the same route. Um, and so kind of thinking through what does, what do these gender norms broadly defined mean, not just for women? Um, and also thinking about kind of what would a more equitable workplace look like? So what's, why is paternity leave really important? So that, like what are some really tactical issues in a workplace um, that can not only help create more gender equity, but that also um, can allow kind of our male friends and colleagues to lead a life that's as full and enriching kind of across all aspects of their lives as they wanted. That's great, and and I think I don't know, Laszlo and Jen, if you, either of you have kind of thoughts around, um, you know, how this really translates over into the corporate world. I think, I mean, Jen, you kind of alluded to it there that some of these norms uh, that are there in the corporate world, um, and then you kind of reflected back on the grassroots nature of kind of getting things started at Stanford. Um, you know, I, I think there are corporate programs going on, but I, I wonder also if the grassroots movement isn't something that could be just as powerful and effective um, in the corporate space, and, and if anybody has thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, in reflecting back on the time at Stanford, you know, it was interesting, the pushback that we received was not from our classmates, um, but it was really from some older female alums who were really nervous that kind of the safe space for kind of women-only discussion would somehow evaporate. Um, and I think that kind of the way that we designed the program was not um, doing that, but I think that that fear is, I, I get where that's coming from. And so I, from my experience coming back into the workplace, a lot of these challenges can feel generational. Um, and it can feel like the tide is shifting really quickly. Um, and I think it, you know, I'm 31, um, and I think of since, you know, I started how dramatically some of these conversations have shifted just in my relatively short working career, and so I can't even imagine for some of my colleagues. Um, and so coming back into the workplace, what I've noticed is kind of the need to, in some ways, have more patience than um, as a student I felt the need for, but just to recognize that folks are coming at this from a lot of different perspectives and life experiences. Um, and kind of thinking back to that chart that Lisa showed earlier in the presentation, that folks are in kind of different parts of that chart. Um, and, and also just trying to think through kind of what are cultural questions versus really tactical questions. Um, and I think the cultural things kind of need to be lived and breathed throughout the whole organization. They can't just come from the top down. Um, but some of those more tactical things, um, that's where leaders of an organization can really kind of signal their important, their, their dedication and importance to these issues by, um, by thinking through kind of the tactics and the leave and the policies. That's great. Okay. Well, thanks for kind of. Yeah, I would, I would echo oh, okay. everything that. Jen said, I think the one um, thing I might add from my experience that uh, differs between the corporate and the educational settings is um, the importance of sort of top-down um, sponsorship in a corporate setting. I think the norms around what's acceptable, what's incentivized, what do people feel comfortable voicing um, in a corporate setting are much more inherently tied to what management or corporate leadership says is acceptable. And so something we've seen in consulting with private sector organizations is um, a real benefit to finding a high-level sponsor uh, who can champion these issues. And then I would say, you know, sort of open the, the floodgates or, or authorize the folks who are doing this work from a grassroots level to really be more vocal and, and gain traction. That's great. That's a really good point. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Um, so each of you has been involved in really starting a male ally group, and, and I'm curious what impact you've seen from the creation of these groups. And Lisa, maybe you can start with just, um, you know, your experience working with all of these groups across these different schools. Um, what have you noticed changes? One bucket of change I see is really about how it influences the thinking of men that get involved and 
<clears throat> the word I'm using is this this idea of a mind shift, and I think they are these pretty pretty big shifts. So, for instance, going from what I would call the the random incident, you know, a woman tells you a story about something that happened at work, and you know, there's a sense of oh, that's you know, that's not great, but maybe that's a one-off, and coming to really understand the much more sort of the patterns of behavior and the much more systemic nature of these gender challenges, I think that's a very big shift that men go through, and in terms of realizing that a lot of this can be quite subtle and that it can be really easy to miss, and it's almost like you develop this gender lens, if you will, that you can see things that you didn't really see before. Um, another uh, example of what I would call one of these sort of mind shifts is, you know, the sense of gender equity is about women. I think there's been a lot of, you know, feeling or bias that, oh, that's a woman thing. And then really shifting to realize gender equity is about me and is about me because it's about all of the, you know, important females in my life from my sister, mother, daughter to my colleagues and friends from graduate school, et cetera. And uh, one of the stories I can remember one of the male allies telling me was about um, he uh, he was a um, black man, and he was saying, you know, my older sister, who was in a professional role, a pretty senior role, would, you know, share her experience and say, you know, the work part is easy for me. The professional part, it's the disrespect part that's the hard part. And, you know, that was very personal about somebody he really cared about. The other piece that um, I think men are realizing much more to the point of, that Jen was making is this is about me in terms of the kind of life I I want to be, have the kind of parents I want to be. And I was involved in a research project looking at millennial dads, and one of the big findings was that they were the happiest, they had the least work-life pressure. You know, there were many metrics that were much more positive for those dads who both said they thought they wanted to share care equally with their spouse and actually did it. So that's a piece of it. The other last thought I'll leave is, in addition to the thinking, I think the huge power is hearing about it's not just thinking, but it's behavior. So it's things like, you know, as a team leader, I'm very cognizant and making sure that women on the team are having the same access to high visibility opportunities as men. Or if with the job description, I don't use what I would call like the hot words like mastermind or czar, you know, words where women might self-select out because they would say, well, I'm good at skilled at that, but, I, you know, I, I don't know if I qualify to that level. Or it's even things about men thinking about their own behavior, like stepping back and considering in a much more self-reflective way and then maybe asking for feedback, is this, does this make you uncomfortable or something? So I think we see definitely pretty major shifts in thinking, but I also see, you know, the great part is now that these men, like many of the folks on the phone are back in the workforce, you know, that's where they're really making very concrete changes in the way they approach things. That's great. Those are some good examples. Um, Alan, do you want to um, share your perspective as well on the student side? Sure. I think some of the things we've, we've noticed is that some we are often sort of strategic or trying to be strategic about the types of people we especially want to come to the events, the types of men especially, um, because we want to, we know that there's a lot of people who maybe haven't thought about these issues, maybe they haven't been faced with kind of an aha moment or they haven't. Um, given much thought to it. So we really, when we have, for example, uh, this upcoming week, we have a panel where women share their stories. It's kind of a fishbowl setting. And then men are in the audience, and women. Um, and they sort of listen to those stories and can't ask any questions until a certain um, period of time is over. And we encourage and, like, very strategically reach out to certain men that we think, you know, are engaged in activities that are influential or, uh, or are, like, well thought of. And we really want to make sure that they're at these events. One, because we think it sends a uh, positive signal that, you know, the males here at Tuck are, like, being thoughtful about these things and want to contribute, but then also that, you know, if we can 
have people just, just kind of have those moments where they at least think a little bit more about certain privileges they have or certain situations they may find themselves in and how they can be the allies that women want us to be as opposed to ones that we kind of want to be ourselves or not or don't think about it at all. So um, seeing those and seeing some of the, the reactions that women have where they think, oh, that's good that we're having these discussions. Obviously, there's a lot of work left to be done, but um, I think the presence, the engaging all members of the community, but certain members especially who are influential and can really sort of help push forward the mission here at Tuck, especially as, you know, after two years students trickle in and out and making sure that these initiatives are sustainable, I think it's been something really good to see. That's great. Thanks for that perspective. And um, I'm going to go over to a Q&A question now, and I'm going to ask uh, you, anybody that wants, I think maybe Kyle and Jen might have some stories around this, but what is it that members of the male ally groups um, can do to really build trust with the women who are driving for equity? So um, can you talk a little bit about that relationship back and forth between either getting this group started or what you found that you had to do in order to work work things out smoothly? I know everybody had a few bumps in the road and all of this didn't work out perfectly the first time you tried it. So um, maybe Kyle, could you start and then Jen follow up? Absolutely. So I think the, the key word for me is humility. Um, you know, we, I think we, we went into it knowing that we didn't have a true playbook to follow. And for us, most important was to present ourselves as open to any of that information, feedback that, that we couldn't see. I think we noticed we probably had more blind spots coming out of the gates than, uh, than we realized. But um, fortunately, having um, trusting relationships, I used to sort of say like building trust, I think both being open to that feedback that comes through and actually acting on it. And so while we were having those bumps along the road, we took everything that all the inputs that were coming through and tried to respond individually in a meaningful way. And that ultimately righted out any of the bumpy starts that we had and felt like we were um, in a much better place for the long run because we just established one of our core principles was we're open to feedback and we're going to act on it. Great. Jen, do you have some thoughts on that? Sure. Um, you know, in, in anything, I think Kyle's approach of trying to be open to feedback is, is a great one. Um, one thing that we really noticed was that whenever talking about sensitive issues around whether it's race, class, gender, sexuality, whatnot, um, it's really easy to be worried that you're going to say the wrong thing or that you're going to inadvertently offend someone because you don't have the context or language um, to, to convey yourself in the way that you want. And so one of the things that we tried to do was to lower the barriers of entry so that folks didn't feel like they had to already have everything perfectly articulated and thought out to engage in these conversations. Um, and one of the key ways that we tried to do that was by organizing kind of smaller group conversations um, and where applicable kind of either with people you already knew or in the same gender setting, so kind of a group of four or five all men or with friends that you already had, but trying to find ways to engage in these conversations that didn't feel like if you accidentally did or said the wrong thing, it would somehow be broadcast to everyone and, and you would feel kind of stigmatized for, for being saying the wrong thing or being kind of a bad person. Um, and so I think those kind of smaller groups that can create and build some more trust and um, comfort with the conversation was really helpful um, for us in our community. One of the other uh, things to just keep in mind that also builds trust or if you did done incorrectly would erode trust, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it given all of the headlines that are swirling these days, but I might an ethics and business professor tell us that you can't really be a moral leader manager and an immoral person. And so I think one other quick way to erode trust is if you have like a face of a male ally group that is behaving one way in the office, and something entirely different outside of the office, and that starts to swirl through. Um, I think just being mindful of who is identified as being the, the leaders of that movement is really important because you can't, you can't just be one and, and not the other. It's, it's, it's sort of a moral standard in, in, in all settings. You're, you're an ally 24-7. 
Um, that's great. Thanks, Kyle, for, for bringing, bringing us back to that. Um, so a, a couple of questions have come through really about in the corporate setting, how, how can you bring this up with men, um, without men feeling like uh, they're being blamed for something? And I think there's definitely, given what's been happening in the press lately, a lot of um, sensitivity around this. Um, and so, I, I, you know, maybe there's um, some, some thoughts on that and how to kind of approach this in, again, a positive way. So I'll actually put out maybe a, a more uh, iconoclastic answer, and, and you can compliment it with something. But, you know, I would say while that's very important, and I think it's, it's one of the purposes of, you know, one of the, the key factors in engaging men is to lower the sensitivity and, and the sense of defensiveness, there's also a unique role for male allies themselves to really hold men to account in a way that I think um, we can be more effective in doing than some of our female colleagues because um, given, you know, the, the privilege we have, you know, male peers are often more open to hearing something as being unbiased when it comes from us and writing things off from our female colleagues as, well, you're saying that because you're a woman or, you know, you, you have one point of view. Um, and so I'd say, you know, there's a delicate balance, but, but a real important function of being an ally is to have some of those harder conversations that others um, may be structurally disadvantaged in having. Uh, so, so that would be one, I'd say, you know, point or, or counterpoint to that question. Kyle, I don't know if you wanted to respond too, but I, I also would just point out that I've heard the story that many of these groups kind of started with a conversation as, as Jen was kind of describing in a smaller group between friends where there was about a, a safety um, in the conversation and it made it easy to get to that next level of understanding so that when you did start having these harder conversations, the, the men were better equipped to represent what the women had already reflected to them because they had heard it kind of in a safe place amongst friends and, and gave them kind of that empowered feeling that Laszlo's describing where they were able to kind of have, um, you know, these conversations with their male counterparts that then kind of eliminated that perception of bias. So I'm, I'm curious if anybody wants to kind of comment on that and how, how this conversation can kind of got started in some of your worlds. Kayla, so this is Jen. Um, one thing that was interesting that we noticed was kind of growing out of those smaller group conversations, there became kind of a norm established where um, male, when we were in business school, where male classmates would frequently ask male speakers questions around gender dynamics in their workplace. Um, or kind of how they managed to balance it all with having a kid and a fulfilling career and being a good partner to their spouse. Um, and so I think that part of it was trying to socialize from maybe needing to express a point of view in a small setting to being feeling empowered to ask questions of leaders to make it clear that these were priorities that you had and asking kind of what the organization is doing to address them assuming good intent and assuming that the organization also prioritizes it and just looking for clarification. Um, so rather than saying, kind of pointing out ways in which they're not achieving that, trying to kind of encourage and, and make known that that's a priority that you have. Um, and for us at least, we found that it was significantly more powerful to have our male classmates ask um, male leaders about it as opposed to so often you see kind of female CEOs come on campus and the only question that um, female students ask is kind of how do you how do you balance it all and so kind of flipping that script and having those conversations come from men was, was really effective. Interesting. Thanks, Jen. We have another question then. What are those things like the KPIs that the champions of a program are looking for? So if you're launching something like this, how do you know it's going to be successful and sustainable? So if anybody could share kind of how they measured that success. So I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I wish I had a better answer for this one. Uh, I do think it's important to establish some goals, um, and I think in the early stages in creating these male ally groups, a lot of what we were achieving were very, um, they're very like abstract in nature and really just trying to start the conversation. And, and in many ways that was for us 
uh, it. Yeah, I mean, I think to host uh, like a certain number of events and reach, um, you know, a uh, let's say like a, a critical mass of the student body population. But I think, you know, what's been said earlier in the stages, I think you end up engaging in activities based on how you set up your goals. So for us in the early stages, we thought reaching everyone in the student body and trying to get everyone's signature to sign a pledge was a low touch way to try and engage um, everyone in the movement. And so all of our behaviors were driven, were, were going towards that direction. When in you know, hindsight, I think I wish I would have taken more of uh, what Jen was talking about earlier, that grassroots approach. And so you can see when you're trying to just like get mass numbers, you, you, you do the low touch activities because that's what's scalable. But I think the real power, the real value comes in those uh, smaller conversations. And so it's something that we, we, were, we were struggling with at the start. And I think it's very evident to me, like from my personal perspective, I wouldn't advise on, on those numbers and sort of setting those KPIs. Um, but I do think having some goal, whether it's just hosting a certain number of events or um, you know, trying to have like a, a steady cadence of conversations as part of these allies groups, uh, I, I think is is important, and then you could always do like a pre-post survey. We just didn't feel like formalizing anything to to show um, an impact assessment that way. Yeah, I think it's great. I think I've heard from some other leaders as you're thinking about the movement or the change of mindset that you're hoping to accomplish. Many of them had a similar goal where we're going to try to reach 100% of the, the men or have 100% of the men sign up, but they also realized that there's probably a good 80-20 rule here where 20% of the men are never going to engage on this conversation, but that doesn't mean that you can't have some movement of the needle in the other 80%, and you might bring somebody who's down in the 30s or 40s up to a 60 or 70 in terms of their understanding and knowledge about this topic and them feeling equipped. So I think having some kind of scale there and measuring that in the beginning and at the end and trying to get some perspective on how these conversations changed those perceptions would be would be helpful. Um, but just, you know, for the audience, I do think there's there's a, a group of people that are going to be your captive audience, and then there's a whole other group that's probably going to ignore you. So spending 80% of your time trying to get that 20% motivated is probably not the most effective use of resources as you're planning your programs and events. One other question that just came through was really how, how can you get something started in your own workplace, especially if you're in an entry-level position? Forte is building a corporate toolkit that's, that's not something we're going to give to HR, but really something for professionals to download and take with them and kind of learn from and give them some of these same kind of conversation starters and event ideas that they could use either within their ERGs or in establishing an ERG, and employee resource group. You can always come back to our site because we will have something um, a little bit more specific around that. But I'll also just open it up uh, to the audience. I don't know if, Lisa, if you have some ideas there too, but what specifically can you do to get something like this started? And I'd also say let's add a little bit of a perspective from an earlier question, which is what if you really are um, in the minority? I mean, how do you bring up these conversations in a place where you are in a male-dominated office or uh, industry where it does seem very tentative to, to walk in and, and ask or, or start this conversation. So any advice there that people might have? Employee resource group or a, a women's network, I think that's a good place to, to start and to try to connect and, and surface the idea. Um, the other thing I'm thinking, especially if you were, you know, a younger man, um, is that typically there are men that you see as role models and women too and i would suggest approaching someone like that and saying you know i'd love to have a group you know compliment them on what you see they do well if you will but also then sort of float the idea because to laszlo's point earlier i think having more senior level support is important and usually in Almost every organization, there are some senior level men that really do demonstrate that. My sort of philosophy is male allies are everywhere. They just don't know it. Like we don't have language for it, whatever. But I think it's who do you see in the organization that you admire and might be somebody you could reach out to about this idea of starting something. And I think, you know, starting small is always a, easier, safer, less scary way for companies to start things. 
That's great. Thanks, Lisa. I'll also just add that somebody wrote in, um, they were involved in University of Toronto's male ally group, and they created an inclusion survey that was sent to all of the women in management members with the intent to resurvey them year over year for impact. And that's a great idea just to kind of have that benchmark from a student perspective or an employee perspective. So that could be helpful. Any, any other thoughts from our panelists, kind of final words of advice or wisdom around this topic that we haven't gotten to share? I'd say get okay. started. I think there's a lot of opportunity, and I think there are so many men that will really respond positively to having a way to plug in that feels positive and safe at the same time. Absolutely, and I, I would just say as someone who has been involved in this for a few years, you know, it's a very rewarding experience and a very rewarding journey. Um, so anyone who has an inkling that this is something they care about and they don't really know how to get started, I would just you know, highly encourage you to dive in, um, reach out to someone at Forte or one of the panelists or anyone you know who uh, can help be a mentor in, in getting started and reach out to you know, the women in, in your life and in the settings that you're active in who can help, you know, provide their perspective as well. And, um, and you'll learn a lot along the way. You don't need to have all the answers going in. That's great. Thanks. And, and I will just say to Alyssa, thanks to her again. And anybody on uh, the webinar that's interested in getting more involved and would like to reach out to me, it's uh, Alyssa, E-L-I-S-S-A, at ForteFoundation.org. We'd love to hear corporate stories if you have examples or grassroots efforts that are getting started or something more formal, um, we'd love to engage with you and continue to reflect kind of the best practices of what's going on in the industry. We work closely with our MBA student clubs, so if you're a, a student on campus and you're not involved in that, please let us know as well. We want to make sure we loop you in to everything that's going on at Forte. This is a really important part of our work and we are uh, thrilled to be able to support these efforts. Um, and to make a difference in the workplace with conversations like these. So I want to thank all of our panelists and thanks to our audience for participating and asking questions. Um, on behalf of Forte Foundation, I just want to thank everyone for joining us. Please subscribe to the Forte Foundation podcast on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. And don't forget to review us on iTunes. It really helps. Thanks.